Can you hear me? All right. Happy Sabbath. Are you having a good convention? I love the morning because my voice is so deep. I like to sing in the morning, sing the bass. Well, we've been studying in our Sabbath school lesson uh, the epistles of John, and it has been an excellent quarterly. How many of you have been studying faithfully your lesson quarterly? Let me see you raise your hands. Great. I remember when I first became a Seventh-day Adventist, one of the things that drew me to the church, one of the things that initially really appealed to me was the fact that this was not an isolated parochial church, but it is a worldwide church. Can you say amen to that? And one of the things that gives a worldwide church the kind of coherence and cohesiveness that we have uh, is the fact that all over the world, all of our members, whether they are in Australia or they are in America or they are in Africa, all over the world, we study the same thing from week to week, month to month, Sabbath to Sabbath, and quarter to quarter. Amen? And I think that's great. I think it's very important for us as Seventh-day Adventists who can be very busy to take seriously not just the study of God's Word in general, but to take very seriously the Sabbath school commentary. I believe that God guides the general conference and the other men and women that are in charge of planning and strategizing these quarterlies so that we receive these quarterlies right on time to study things that are critical for us at this point in earth's history. And so we're going to be talking today, not in a sermonic fashion, but we're going to be going through the lesson. And our lesson this week was on antichrists. What was it on, everyone? Antichrists. And the title of the lesson is Walking in the Light, Rejecting Antichrists. And as we've been going through the lesson, we're not quite halfway through, uh, we've had this sort of mini-series, walking in the light, keeping His commandments, walking in the light, being ready for the coming of Christ, and now walking in the light, rejecting antichrists. And so the essence, the, the, the guts of what we're going to be talking about today is this topic of the antichrist, but especially from the perspective of 1 John and also we'll look a little bit at 2 John. So before we get into Scripture proper, let's begin with a word of prayer as we commence with our lesson study. Father in heaven, we anticipate your presence among us. We are not inviting you to come and be with us because we believe you were here before any of us got here. And so, Father, we are glorying in the fact that you have invited us to come and meet with you. Father, we are living in perilous and portentous times. We are living in strange times. We are living in hostile times. And Father, many of us have not made Scripture the priority that it should be. And we need to be recalibrated. We need to be refocused. And we pray today, Father, that as we study this very serious and biblical topic of the Antichrist, that you would give us a urgency, a sense of immediacy, that today is the day of salvation and that now is the accepted time. Father, today we hear your voice and so we want to heed the admonition of the psalmist not to harden our hearts. So please, Father, as we open your word in this marvelous supernatural transaction, may the inspiring spirit now become the instructing spirit. And Father, may you open us, may you read us, and may our sense of urgency and our sense of immediacy be increased as a result of this study is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. So let's all open together to 
the epistle of 1 John, 1 John, and we're going to chapter 2. What chapter are we going to, everyone? Chapter 2. Walking in the light, rejecting antichrists. Now, 1 John chapter 2, our passage that we're going to be concentrating on and that our lesson study brings out uh, for this week begins in verse 18. We're going to begin reading in verse 18 and extend down to verse 27. So we're in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. John says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, there's our word, and even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be manifested that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is, what does your Bible say there? What's the next word? Here it is again, the third time. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either, Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Verse 24, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to, what does your Bible say there? Trying to seduce you, trying to deceive you, trying to trick you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. This is the passage that we're going to be looking at today, and we will be branching out into other passages. But the central idea here is that John was concerned about these infiltrators. He was concerned about a group of separatists, and probably, as the lesson quarterly brings out, these separatists had Gnostic leanings, Gnostic influences, and we find John's pastoral heart, John's pastoral concern on full display. And he says, I'm writing this to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Then he goes on to use the term antichrist, not once, not twice, but three times. He says they are antichrist, they are antichrist, they are antichrist. Now the word antichrist occurs only five times in scripture, five times, all of them in the epistles of John. In fact, what we're going to do now is just jump over to chapter 4 and notice the second usage here of Antichrist, the second passage in which John uses this term. Go with me to chapter 4. We begin in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what should we do with the spirits? Test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Notice verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of what, everyone? Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is even now in the world. The Antichrist apparently already was in the world, or at least the spirit of Antichrist, and John identifies these Gnostic-leaning separatists that were infiltrating his churches, probably the churches in and around Ephesus, as Antichrist figures. He uses this word Antichrist in three ways here. He says Antichrist in the singular, Antichrists in the plural, and the spirit of Antichrist as well. Let's look at our third passage. We go from 1 John to 2 John. 2 John. There's only one chapter there, so that's an easy one to figure out. 
2 John chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 7. It says, For many deceivers, there's that word again, have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and a what? Antichrist. There is the fifth and final usage of Antichrist in the Bible. So we've just done an exhaustive study on the word Antichrist in Scripture. They're they are all here in 1 John and 2 John. Notice what he goes on to say, though. Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Verses 10 and 11 are really striking and, and, and frankly uh, strike us as almost unchristian, as almost too strong. Notice what he says. If anyone comes to you, John writing to his church, his pastoral heart on full display. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his what? In his evil deeds. You, you can really get the sense here that, that John is very concerned, deeply concerned. In fact, this, this sense of urgency and immediacy saturates the epistles of John. And here we find John with his pastoral heart on full display. And he says, if these people come to you and they want to come into your house, don't even let them into your house. In fact, don't even greet them in the streets. Don't greet them in the marketplace because he who receives them and greets them is actually a participant, is acquiescing to their evil deeds. Question, is John concerned, yes or no? Is he very concerned? Yeah, the sense of immediacy, the sense of urgency is absolutely on display here. And John says, when these antichrists, when these deceivers come to you, do not receive them. What was taking place, probably, as we begin to put the pictures together, is that there were a group of infiltrators, as we've already suggested, and as the lesson quarterly brings out, they were Gnostically influenced, likely. Now, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis. It means to know. It means to what, everyone? To know. For example, many of us uh, have heard someone say they are an agnostic. You might have met someone and uh, you tried to witness to them and they said, you know, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't consider myself a believer. I consider myself to be an agnostic. Well, an agnostic is simply the opposite of a Gnostic. If something is symmetrical, if you have a piece of paper that is symmetrical, if you fold it in half, the two halves are the same. If you have something that is asymmetrical, when you fold it in half, the two halves are not the same. And so a Gnostic is someone who knows, an agnostic is someone who claims not to know. In the first, second, and third centuries, this Gnostic-influenced heresy was one of the great hurdles that the early church faced. And basically, many scholars believe that Gnosticism cannot be defined as a homogenous entity. There is discussion about what exactly Gnosticism is. And while we may not be able to put all of the pieces together, we can be sure of a few things. What these Gnostics were basically doing, and especially in John's case here, is they were subtly infiltrating the church. They were subtly what, everyone? infiltrating the church. And they were saying things probably like this. What John is teaching you is great. What others are teaching you is fine. But we know. But we what, everyone? We know what's really going on. It's nice what they've taught you, and they have got you started, but now it's time to advance into more light, into more knowledge about God. We know what is taking place, and many of the things that they purported to know stood in direct opposition to Scripture. Now, 
some of you are really into conspiracy theories. Is that true, yes or no? I won't make you raise your hands and embarrass yourselves. Now, there is a grand conspiracy. I, too, believe not in a conspiracy theory, but in an actual conspiracy. And the conspiracy is to keep you away from Jesus. Can you say amen? But there are, in addition to this grand conspiracy, other conspiracies that sort of grab our attention, and for some people, they become absolutely consuming. Uh, The conspiracy theory du jour is what exactly happened on 9-11. And uh, you meet people who are totally consumed with what actually took place. And these people will come to us and they will say things like, uh, sure, the media tells us that there were 19 hijackers. And sure, the media tells us that it's Islamic fundamentalism, Islamic radicalism. But we know, but we, what's the word, everyone? But we know what's really going on. And just about that time, they hand you the DVD, right? Watch this DVD and you too will know. You will also know what is going on behind the scenes. You will have inside knowledge, inside data, inside information. In many ways, the Gnostics in John's day and in the early church were like these conspiracy theorists who were saying, sure, that's what others are telling you, but we know what's really happening. This is what is really taking place behind the scenes. Now, very significantly... The word know is a critical word in the epistle of first, in all of the, uh, uh, in all of not just chapter 2 here, but in all of 1 John. In fact, stay right there in 1 John and go to chapter 5. Stay right there in 1 John and go to chapter 5. We're talking about antichrists. John identifies these Gnostic-influenced infiltrators as antichrist. We're going to get down to our modern Uh, application of this, but first we want to understand textually and contextually what was John addressing, what was actually taking place. When we go to 1 John chapter 5, we read in verse 13, and I want you to notice the recurrent theme here, the recurrent idea here. He says in verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, what is the word? That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Notice verse 15. John is closing his epistle here. He's bringing this epistle to a close. He says in verse 15, And if we, what is the word? If we know that he hears us whenever we ask, we, what's the word? Know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. Notice verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who, keeps himse- uh, he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. Verse 20, and we know the Son of God has come. Notice the recurrent theme here as John is bringing his epistle to a close. We know that we have eternal life. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. We know that when we pray, we have the things that we asked of him. We know, we know, we know, we know, we know. In fact, marvelously, even though there are only five chapters... Five short chapters in the epistle of 1 John, John actually uses the word know, if I'm not mistaken, or I think I'm on this, more than any other book in the New Testament. This word know. I mean, you think about the book of Matthew, 28 chapters. You think about the book of Mark, 16 chapters. Luke, 24 chapters. John, 21 chapters. Acts, 28 chapters. And here in five chapters, John says, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. Why the emphasis on knowing? Well, contextually, because there were others who were coming in and saying, well, what John has taught you is good, what you've learned is good, but we know what is really taking place behind the scenes. Are you with me, yes or no? In fact, on one occasion, John says something absolutely fascinating. 
He says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. We read this. We just read this in 1 John chapter 2. He says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. He says, I'm writing to you, do you remember it? Because you do know the truth. John, in a marvelous stroke of pastoral wisdom and brilliance here, basically, rather than getting into a yelling match, for some reason, John couldn't travel to the church. Probably he was aged and was unable to travel. And so he sends this epistle, and, and in a stroke of pastoral brilliance, rather than getting into a yelling match with the Gnostics, uh, who were trying to infiltrate and to deceive the church, who were saying, we know what's really going on, and according to the, the, the epistle, some were being led astray. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And so people were going out, they were leaving, they were leaving. And so rather than getting into a yelling match in which the Gnostics are saying, no, we know. And John says, no, we know. And they say, no, we know. This is the truth. No, 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 no. This is the truth. No, 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 no. This is the truth. John says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. I'm writing to you because you already know the truth. And in the context, he says, because the Spirit himself has given you the truth. Can he say amen to that? It reminds me of that marvelous story there when Jesus says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say, Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, Okay, well, who do you think I am? And Peter speaks up on behalf of the rest of the apostles, and he says, You are the Christ. You're the Son of God. You are the Christ. And what Jesus says is marvelous here. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But who? Who did he say revealed it to him? My Father which is in heaven. In other words, men didn't teach you that. God taught you that. And when John writes here with, with his pastoral heart on full display and his concern on full display, he says, you don't need another human teacher. In fact, he says that. You don't need anyone to teach you because you know all things. John did not want to get into a yelling match where it was the Gnostics versus him and the, the congregation would have been confused and invariably divided. John fingers these separatists, John fingers these Gnostic-influenced separatists as antichrists, antichrists, antichrists. Many scholars believe that the word antichrist was itself coined by John. He may have been the one that formulated the word. Now, now our, our lesson here is rejecting antichrists. So I think it follows a logical uh, pattern here, a logical linear line of reasoning to suggest this. If we're going to reject antichrists in modern times, and even in John's time, if they were going to reject antichrists, they had to first know what an antichrist was. Are you with me, yes or no? Of course. How can you reject something that you don't even have an identity of? And so we are rejecting antichrists. In John's day, there was no question, no equivocation about what the antichrist was. It was these separatists who had left, who had actually gone out under the uh, uh, influence of these, these uh, Gnostic-influenced teachers and were beginning to woo people away from John's church, likely in Ephesus, wooing them away. And John says, if these people come to you, don't greet them. Certainly don't have them into your house. Not because John didn't want them to act in a kindly, Christian, and courteous manner, but John knows that these deceptions are of such a character, of such a subtlety, that many of his burgeoning young sheep will be led away and, and deceived by these individuals. And he says, don't even greet these people. Now, what is an antichrist? Well, when you take that prefix anti and you stick it on the front of a name or of a person, it can mean several things. 
It can mean being that person or purporting to be that person, what we call impersonation, or even more precisely, personation, claiming to be. It can also mean substitution, taking the place of. So an antichrist is someone who seeks to substitute for the real Christ. In the context of 1 John, the concern, the, the, the uh, nucleus of the heresy revolved around the atonement and the incarnation. Uh, the Gnostics were beginning to say, no, Jesus was more like a projection. He, he wasn't a real flesh and blood because they had these very elaborate ideas about what spirit was and flesh was. And it wasn't possible in their worldview for Jesus to have actually been God and to have actually have been flesh. And so you find John over and over again in the epistle saying, this is he who came by water and blood. He is Christ. He came in the flesh because they were beginning to take issue with the actual incarnation, which simply means the enfleshing of God. But just because that was the first, uh, the, the, the original usage of Antichrist, John and Scripture does not limit Antichrist only to those who have this Gnostic influence. Scripture says, for example, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, that Jesus Christ is the only name whereby people can be saved. Can you say amen to that? And so it is Christ, and it is a correct understanding of Christ, that, that enables us to come to know God. Jesus himself said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so what ends up happening is, is that Satan... Satan begins to set up these counterfeit competing Christs, and these counterfeit competing Christs interpose themselves between genuine believers and the real Christ, and he woos them away from the real Christ. This can take many different forms. When we come to the Middle Ages, for example, the reformers unanimously and uniformly fingered the church itself as Antichrist. They said the Roman church and the office of the Pope is none other than the office of Antichrist. And this wasn't uh, Martin Luther in isolation. This was the uniform, uh, virtually unanimous. In fact, some would argue the actually unanimous uh, perspective of all of the reformers because what they saw was that Scripture had been supplanted and a system, a, an enormous, uh, unbiblical, monolithic obstruction had placed itself between the believer and the Christ. And so the reformers looked at that and said, that's an antichrist system. That is a system that is seeking to take the place, to take the position of Christ. And so they said the office of the Pope is the office of antichrist. And they said it over and over again, the office of antichrist, the office of antichrist. And they were exactly right. And they were right because of this simple reason. Anything that seeks to interpose itself between the sincere believer and the genuine historical scriptural Christ is in a very real sense an antichrist. That's why John can use the term antichrists in the plural, antichrist in the singular, that is a consummate antichrist that is to come, and the spirit of antichrist, which is any spirit that seeks to interpose itself between the genuine believer and the scriptural Christ. Are we together, everyone? Yes or no? Now, what does this mean for us today? Well, according to Revelation chapter 13, the very entity that the reformers unanimously fingered as the Antichrist will actually become resurgent, reborn, and revitalized, and will become again not just an Antichrist, but the consummate Antichrist. The consummate entity, the consummate system who has set up a rival Christ and a rival system of salvation. Revelation chapter 13 presents this in marvelous counterfeit language. In fact, many scholars have noted this. 
They have noted that, that in Revelation 13, you have, you have Christ, uh, in Revelation, for example, depicted with horns and crowns. And so too the Antichrist beast of Revelation 13, depicted with horns and crowns. Christ is ministering for three and a half years on earth. The Antichrist comes for 1,260 days, or three and a half prophetic years. Christ received the, the deadly wound and, and was raised. He was resurrected. The Antichrist, so too, receives a deadly wound and is healed. And many have noted this counterfeit motif between the genuine Christ and this Revelation 13 Antichrist. And that's why it is absolutely biblical, even though the nomenclature is not there in Revelation 13, to refer to the first beast of Revelation 13 as the Antichrist beast. Because this beast is seeking to set up, to usurp the very position, place, preeminence, and prominence of Christ by interposing its own system. Its own what, everyone? Its own system. And maybe we should quickly disabuse our minds of this idea that in order to be a counterfeit Christ, you have to dress up like Jesus. You have to put on the robe and pretend to be Jesus and have the beard and carry the cross around. Not at all. A counterfeit Christ can be any Christ that claims to deliver, that claims to save by some means other than what Scripture identifies as the only way of salvation. Are you with me, everyone? Yes or no? And so an antichrist in John's day were those that interposed themselves between the true Christ, the incarnate Christ, who died on Calvary's tree to save us, and the, this, this false system between that and the believer. For us in, in, in modern times, there is going to be a consummate antichrist, and in fact, there is a consummate antichrist. And as we've already said, it is none other than the reborn, revitalized, resurgent church that the reformers unanimously fingered in the Middle Ages. Now, this antichrist is not slow to move. And we are seeing right before our very eyes these last movements which are rapid ones. In fact, I have an article right here with me dated July 26, 2009 from USA Today that says Pope calls for God-centered global economy. Let me just read you the first two paragraphs. Pope Benedict XVI today called for reforming the United Nations and establishing a true political, world political authority with, fascinating language here, real teeth. With what, everyone? Uh, just, just a quick question of clarification. What are teeth for? For biting, for chewing, for devouring. A true world political authority with real teeth to manage the global economy with a God-centered ethic. Sounds very nice. Sounds very good. Sounds very magnanimous. Sounds very wonderful. In fact, it goes on. In his third encyclical, a major teaching released as the G8 summit begins in Italy. By the way, this was well-timed. This, was uh, this wasn't a happenstance. This was absolutely calculated, the release of the epistle, uh, the encyclical. The Pope says that such an authority is urgently needed. Oh, now we have an urgent need for a God-centered global economy with real teeth. This is sounding surprisingly, but not to us, not, not to us, startlingly, like exactly what has been predicted in Revelation many hundreds of years ago, two millennia ago, and even more uh, precisely and even more with more detail in great controversy about 150 years ago. Urgently needed to end the current world financial crisis, it should revive damaged economies, reach toward disarmament. Listen to how good this sounds. Disarmament food security, and peace. Beloved, Revelation chapter 13, in the plainest of language, suggests that this end-time antichrist, which is very similar to 
the Antichrist that existed in John's day, seeking to interpose itself between the true believer and the historical Christ. Revelation 13 says that this power will use economics. Will use what word did I say, everyone? Economics. In fact, it goes so far as to say that if you don't receive this mark of the beast, this mark of allegiance to this end-time Antichrist, that you will not be able to, does anyone remember? To buy or sell. Beloved, that is economics. There is going to be a significant economic pressure, a significant economic uh, pressure that is brought to bear on God's people at the end of time that's going to go something like this. Either you get along with our program, either you acquiesce to, to our desire for global disarmament. Oh, that sounds so nice. Our desire for global peace, our desire to end food. Either you get on board with our program or you yourself will not be able to sell. You yourself will not be able to buy. Does that sound like economic peer pressure, yes or no? Absolutely. Now, if it was only economic, those of us that have gardens and other things may be able uh, for a time to endure. But you actually see in Revelation 13 an escalation from economic pressure to or else. Or else. I am so thrilled that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, Scripture says in the plainest of language, here is the patience of the saints, Here are those that, do you know it? Keep the commandments of God and cling to their faith in Jesus. Beloved, there is going to be an end time people who will reject the overtures of Antichrist, who will reject the overtures of an end time system that has sought to usurp the power of Christ, to interpose itself between us and the Christ. My word of exhortation for you today is the same that John gave to his church many hundreds of years ago. And that is, I'm not telling you these things because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth. Beloved, this is the time when we need to know God, we need to know Him, We need to know Him. 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 Why? Because this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thrilled with the message today, a message that by Your grace we can reject antichrists. And Father, we pray too that you would give us the desire to reject spirit of Antichrist, anything, any false system that would seek to interpose and interrupt the relationship that you have with your people. Father, may we be riveted to you, may we be riveted to Christ, and may we be riveted to Scripture so that when these overtures, economic, miraculous, and eventually on pain of death come to us, may we stand with Christ, may we stand by Christ, and may we stand in Christ is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Let everyone say, Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org